Danielle, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. You're listening today to my interview with Danielle Ofri, recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, Vashon, Washington. So, Danielle, thank you for calling in. Thank you, Marsh. What I think might be nice, Danielle, is I usually have my guest authors just give us a short little, you know, bio about themselves. You know, get, get, let my... um. My listeners have a sense of sort of where you're coming from, where you're going. That'd be great. Okay. Well, I, I am a, a general internist, just a regular doctor, and I work at a city hospital in New York called Bellevue Hospital, um, and is has a reputation as a, as a big city hospital. Mm-hmm. I but have heard of it. Just wonderful place to work. I really love being in the midst of everything. We see a lot of patients, immigrants from different cultures, um, from all walks of life. And that's my my main job. I also edit the Bellevue Literary Review, which is a literary journal that publishes poetry, fiction, and nonfiction about health and healing. Mm -hmm. And that comes uh, from Bellevue and and NYU, which is my academic affiliation. And then on the side of that, I try to do my own own writing. And I have published a few books about life and medicine. Um, I write semi-regularly for the New York Times for their well blog and various other publications. So that's who I am. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, by page three or four, I think the thought I had was that you literally could have built a career simply on writing. I mean, you're you're a very good writer. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, this is a very enjoyable book. Um, you know, sometimes I think people might be concerned that someone who's um, a doctor would maybe be sort of overly objective or dry or not the greatest writer. But no, seriously, you could have been a writer by by solo career without a doubt. This, I think, would be a great book for anybody out there who is involved in caretaking for a loved one. You know, if, if basically supporting patients is part of what you do, then this gives you an inside scoop on what's happening on the other side of the table. You know, what is going on for the people who are trying to help you be healthier. So the introduction, the title is Why Doctors Act That Way. Um, What is it that right off the bat you're trying to get across to your readers? Well, maybe if it's okay, I'll start with a little bit how it came to be. Oh, brilliant. Go for it. I was interested um, initially with the question of what makes a doctor who they are? And I started with that question, and I asked that sent it out to colleagues and students, and just tell me what it is that made you the doctor you are today. And I got back a, a ton of mail and stories, but not one person mentioned the New England Journal of Medicine or Harrison's textbook of medicine. Mm-hmm. Every single person wrote passionately about experiences with their patients, and the experiences always surrounded some very powerful emotion mm-hmm. that took place during this encounter, whether it was grief at the loss or illness of a patient, uh, shame at a medical error, joy and awe at, at helping someone or curing someone, the surprise and excitement of, of, of what the human body is capable of. And, and every story was about the emotion. And what fascinated me is the recollection and detail that people had of these events, some of which may have taken place 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Whereas, you know, we, we memorize so much for our board exams. We have to take these exams every 10 years, and I am actually due this year. You know, I memorize this stuff, 
and I forget it right after the exam. Mm-hmm. You know, the types of renal tubular acidosis or the metabolism of pyruvate kinase, it's gone. <laughs> but these stories stay with us, right. and I believe it's because of the powerful emotion. And I, and I realized that emotions shape us as physicians and how we take care of patients almost more than the factual knowledge that we get. Mm-hmm. Because the factual knowledge, it's out there for everyone, but the emotional responses are very individual. Mm-hmm. I think from a patient perspective, the corollary or the opposing viewpoint of that that's actually in agreement would be, sure, maybe there's 10 doctors and they all have the necessary knowledge, but, you know, those five leave me feeling sort of cold and that one really annoys me, but those four are pretty cool and this one's really awesome. You know, the emotional um, feelings of the patient is going to impact who they're going to want to go back to if they're interviewing doctors. Well, you'll often hear people say, oh, that doctor is really smart. You know, they have a lousy bedside manner, but, you know, they're really good, so I'll stick with them. Mm -hmm. And I always think, well, you don't need to take one at the expense of the other. There Mm -hmm. really are enough doctors out there who are really smart and competent that you can really find someone who who has the emotional sophistication to be taking care of you. Mm -hmm. And and medicine, luckily, I, I think, is still a human, a one-on-one human endeavor. Mm-hmm. And any time two humans get together in any circumstance, um, emotions by necessity weave an underlying network. So whether we want to think about the emotions in medicine or not, they're still there. So one of the reasons why, probably why this really excited me a lot is because I grew up in a medical family. So my stepdad, let's see, he went into medical school when I was probably around nine or ten years old. So I'm very cognizant and have a lot of memories of that eight-year, nine-year process of medical school, you know, internship, residency, all that. And then he and my mother started their own medical practice, and she had always worked in the hospitals as well. So I grew up sort of in hospitals. I'd be, my mom would go in to work the night shift, and she'd drop me off in the front lobby area or take me back to the ICU, and I would sit there and hang out until, you know, my stepdad would get off from his day shift an hour and a half later, and then he'd pick me up at like, you know, 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night and take me home, and I'd get up and go to school the next morning. I mean, that was like normal for me. And so I have oftentimes found that my awareness makes it easier for me to be successful as a patient. And I'll have friends that'll tell me this or that happened, and I'll be like, oh, well, you know, you could have asked this question or you could have done that or whatever. And I find that a lot of times people, because they don't have the inside view, they don't even know sometimes the options available to them, or they'll feel almost um, maybe, you know, powerless or alienated or, or just, you know, incapable of, of doing something because they just don't know what's going on the other side of the doctor's desk. And so... I think you have a very unique viewpoint. I actually had the opposite upbringing. Hmm. Nobody in my family is a doctor. They're all teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea what Mm -hmm. it was that doctors did. And I really came to it from an interest in science. I did an MD-PhD program with several years in the lab with the goal of being a bench scientist. Mm. And really, medicine was just a side thing. But I did a, my one-year internship in medicine at Bellevue Hospital, and I was smitten. I just mm. fell in love with the fascinating stories of people who you had the privilege to be part of their lives. I had no idea mm-hmm. that medicine was going to be about people and stories and emotions. I really thought it was going to be about science, mm-hmm. which of course it is. 
but I didn't have a clue. And I can understand why most people don't. They really think of medicine as a very technical field, and mm-hmm. it is, but, you know, the computer can do the technical side. Honestly, 75% of what I do, technically, a computer could do just as well, maybe even better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had a patient today who I saw uh, this morning, last month for the first time, a young woman who ha- had a child and has since been unable to conceive after that. Hmm. And these prolonged period of infertility has plunged her into a depression Mm. that is so powerful and has overwhelmed her life. And when I think about if I use the computer algorithm, it would say, okay, check this box, antidepressant, refer to psychiatry. But that's the easy part. The difficult and and the rewarding and intriguing part is to find out who is this person and where she came from, what her experience as a child. And Mm -hmm. I learned so much about her life in Africa and what she experienced, some of which involved female genital mutilation um, procedures that traumatized her as a child as well as her daughter and her mother and all the things that go into what her experience is and her depression Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't know if I just checked the boxes. And again, it's such a privilege that someone will confide all this in me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel as though, well, now I have some tools and some avenues to come to her that are unique to her that are different than someone who grew up in America and is depressed over fertility from a different perspective. Yeah, the cultural push to perhaps be having more than one child, you know, from that background is going to be different than from a thousand other backgrounds or something. Yeah, exactly. And the baggage. You're right. And I agree. I totally get it that I'm in a really rare um, position, which is exactly why I'm thrilled to have you on the show because I, I, I want this opportunity to be able to, um, and we're going to dive in more, to be able to give all these inner perspectives. It's like we're opening a door in a way, you know, and saying, okay, look. So it's really funny being able to see both sides. Let's open the door a little bit on the issues you want to raise um, because someone's patients are wondering, why is the doctor acting that way? We often think about Sir William Osler, who was um, the founder of modern medicine, and he, he gave a very famous speech, a graduation speech in uh, 1889 at the University of Pennsylvania, and he, he talked about the necessary distance that doctors need from their patients. Dr. William Osler said, quote, a certain measure of insensibility is not only an advantage, but a positive necessity in the exercise of calm judgment. Mm-hmm. And this idea of having the distance in order to be rational, he didn't invent this idea, of equanimity, but he really encapsulated it in his now canonical speech called Equanimitas, mm-hmm. that doctors must have a step back in order to have their brains function rationally, otherwise it will be contaminated by the, the mess and, and emotions of, of human interaction. Mm-hmm. And that idea has really permeated all of medical culture, including popular culture. If you mm-hmm. look at doctors on TV shows and cable shows and movies, they tend to be cerebral rationalists. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what's impressive about them is the way their mind works. And they're fairly re- removed from, from the messy part of human interaction. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not really how medicine works. One of my favorite books is um, Jerome Groupman's book, How Doctors Think. And he writes a lot about medical errors. And, and he, he comments that most medical errors are errors of thinking, cognitive errors. But a large part of what causes these errors, and I'm paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. um, is their inner feelings. Mm-hmm. Feelings we often um, uh, aren't even don't readily admit to, and often aren't even aware of. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the area of cognitive psychology research, there's an enormous body of research about 
how emotions affect our thinking and our decision-making process. Right. And it's and not just so emotions. It's also um, bottled-up emotions and the results that that has. Oh, absolutely. But even in, in, the, in the immediate term, if you, if you think about emotions in the positive and negative sense, positive being the ones that make you feel good, mm-hmm. you know, happiness, joy, satisfaction, and the negative ones, not that they're bad ones, but a negative type of feeling, mm-hmm. anger, shame, people experiencing negative emotions tend to be less flexible in their thinking. They often miss the forest for the trees. And you can imagine how you might make medical errors with experiencing negative emotions. And in fact, people experiencing negative emotions tend to be more prone to something called anchoring bias. Right. And anchoring bias in medicine is when a doctor will latch on to the very first diagnosis that he or she gets and then stick with it no matter what. We mm-hmm. anchor to that even if other later information is contradictory, we tend to discount it. Well, anchoring bias sounds also a little bit like the medical version of confirmation bias in a way. Like you've come up with an idea of what you think the, the illness is, and then as more evidence comes in, you attribute more value to that which supports your original idea, and you may discount that which doesn't. Right, right. Very, Got it. Very similar, very similar. I wanted to make sure I understood what you were saying. So a good example of um, anchoring bias in medicine would be the patient who comes into the emergency room with chest pain. And the first person who thinks, who sees the patient with chest pain thinks this could be a heart attack. Um, and thereafter, every place down the line that the patient goes to, we're thinking along the lines of a heart attack mm-hmm. and the atherosclerotic mechanisms that cause a heart attack. And even if there are data that contradict that or seem to go against it, we, we tend to rule them out. Oh, in women it doesn't present that way. Oh, in Bengalis it's often atypical. And, and so we might miss other causes of chest pain that are not the kind that cause a heart attack. Maybe it is uh, an infectious etiology, mm-hmm. or maybe there's a cause that's connective tissue disorder. So we tend to anchor to the first diagnosis, heart attack, and thereafter we discount contradictory evidence because we're anchored onto that. And, of and course, you can imagine right? how many errors that can, can happen with that. And that's a, And that is impacted by emotions. Well, the people who are experiencing negative emotions are more prone to this type of error. Right. That was what we were saying at the beginning. Exactly. So okay. so maybe the doctor who you were saying comes from it from a more anxious or fearful or frustrated perspective is going to get more clingy. And the person who's not feeling those ways but is feeling more, you know, positive emotions might be more fluid in their thinking, actually. Right. More global, more flexible in their thinking. Right. They actually see the forest, you know, and are able to put aside the trees for the moment. Well, this reminds me a little bit of something that actually hit um, mainstream media, I believe, a few weeks ago. There was a woman who they had decided that they had taken care of her issues and she needed to go home, and she presented as very fearful about going home and not feeling confident that her condition was resolved. And it got to the point where they said, well, we're not going to let you stay here. You have to leave. And I believe literally called the police, put the woman in handcuffs, walked her out of the hospital door, and then she had, like, a seizure, fell on the ground. They take the handcuffs off, take her back inside the hospital. I think a few hours later she died of, a, you know, and that just happened a few weeks ago, actually. And the whole thing, what's interesting is it wasn't the article that was talking about it was not raising up as most important, oh, how did they miss this technical aspect? You know, it wasn't that. It was the shock, the emotional shock of 
how can you, you know, put someone in handcuffs and force them out of the hospital when, you know, because, and then it's like, great, yeah, she goes home, she's fine. Oh, well, I guess she was just, you know, overreacting. Right. But the woman dies. It's like, right. it was a big reminder of maybe you should listen when the patient right. is emotionally freaking out. Right. Maybe there's actually a reason. When I hear that, that it came to handcuffs, I think, what a failure of communication skills. Right. That if someone is upset about going home, well, there are ways to, to deal with that. Almost everyone's issues can be addressed if you take the time mm-hmm. to you know, inquire. Part of what I'm writing in my new book, which is um, projected to be titled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, mm-hmm. and I think in this case it's an excellent example. The patient's saying something and the doctors are not hearing it. Mm-hmm. And really, working more on how we communicate is underlies all of this, and I, right. I think a more skilled communicator would have been able to talk to this patient, I, I, I assume, although I can't say, and not let it get to the point of handcuffs. I mean, right. That really seems quite extreme. Yeah, and unfortunately yeah. it ended up being the wrong person to actually right. escort. I mean, it was the wrong person right. to do that with. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, but, all right. Uh, going, so I want to go back to emotions and errors because right. we talked about the biases that you have while experiencing negative emotions. Mm-hmm. People experiencing positive emotions, uh, joy, satisfaction, and happiness are more flexible, and they tend to see the forest more than the trees, but they can also be prone to bias. Mm-hmm. In this case, people with more uh, positive emotion tend to be prone to attribution bias. And in medicine, attribution bias is when you attribute the illness more to who the patient is rather than the disease process. So mm. I, I set a good example. Where I work at Bellevue, we are sort of equidistant from you know, the Bowery, where a lot of, you know, maybe homeless or drug addict patients reside, and mm-hmm. the United Nations, where many diplomats are. Mm-hmm. And so we often get patients from both walks of life. And a, a patient comes in with a fever, and if they're a drug addict, we think, oh, endocarditis, right? They've shot up and infected their heart valve. And if it's the Swiss diplomat with the nice cufflinks, we think, oh, gastroenteritis or, you know, bronchitis. Mm-hmm. So we tend to attribute, we think about who the person is, and that overly influences our diagnostic Ability, we can make just as many errors mm-hmm. because of attribution bias. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that positive or negative emotions, one is bad, one is good, but that all of our emotions influence our thinking. Mm-hmm. And that being attuned to how we feel mm-hmm. for our emotions, kind of like taking our temperature, our emotional temperature, and being aware that it can influence how we think. Right. After all, our goal is to not be making errors. And so anything right. that causes errors should be on our radar. So the idea of the original idea presented back in the late 1800s of simply step back and be less emotional, therefore, and what you're really putting out there and what you have discovered and therefore are now sharing through this book is that if we go so far down there as to just ignore our emotions and seek to not engage with them or recognize them or acknowledge them, we just sort of stuff them away for the eight hours that we're at work or the 12 hours or whatever, that then those emotions that are there are affecting us, but we cannot predict how they might affect us and we cannot respond to the potential effect because we're in denial. And what we want is our is our medical practitioners to be allowed to not be in denial, but instead recognize the role of emotion and then be able to engage with it more successfully. So a good example is, you know, what if a doctor is really angry at a patient? That, that mm-hmm. happens. Now, taking out the anger in the visit may not be appropriate, but if the doctor doesn't deal with the anger at some point, it's going to rebound at another time. So the doctor needs to 
recognize mm-hmm. that anger that comes up and find another way that evening, that weekend, talking to someone, writing something that, that, that gives that emotion its due. Otherwise, it will come up, and usually in an inappropriate time. Mm-hmm. In, in, you know, when you think about the classic surgeon, you know, screaming in the OR and throwing, you know, instruments around, I mean, there's someone who hasn't probably not dealt with their emotions, and that's, there's a big cause of medical error, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the doctor who is a tyrant. And, and that's, you know, inexcusable, I think, in this day and age. Right. And I'm not saying that doctors or nurses are any more emotionally nuanced than lawyers or accountants. Mm-hmm. But, you know, or the cable repair guy, for that matter. But, like, when an accountant screws up, you know, you pay more taxes. And when your cable repair guy screws up, your reception sucks. But when your doctor or your nurse makes a mistake, well, the stakes are really higher. So I feel as though it's incumbent upon us in the medical profession to be, you know, paying attention to the emotions and making sure that, that everything is working in the service of our patients. Mm-hmm. And I think that your own health as a doctor or a nurse is in service of your patients because if you're not healthy physically or emotionally, you're not able to help your patients. Mm-hmm. So some other things that you get into in this book, there's some issues in here, um, this one in particular. Julia was not from America, and she basically could have survived with a heart transplant, but she was born on the wrong side of the border. So you guys spent a number of years working with her congestive heart failure, unable to do the one thing that would have actually resolved the issue because she didn't have citizenship. So the emotional toll that the political situations can have. And so maybe you're just humdrum American person. You think everything's fine. But doctors are out in the thick of it dealing with all sorts of weird, complicated scenarios that have got to be emotionally stressful and challenging when people you care about for insurance reasons or citizenship reasons or whatever are suffering more than they need to. Right. And, I, and I think that it's um, it's very important – for doctors to recognize that, that emotions are also important in, in giving you a sense of grounding with your patients. And I think a lot about the emotion of fear, which comes up a lot in medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I often give these lectures to the general public, and when I talk about doctors being afraid, I'll tell you, this, this is not what most patients want to hear. They don't want other doctors and nurses to get afraid. But the truth is, ask anyone in medicine you know, and they'll tell you maybe more times than you really care to know, but times they've been completely overcome by fear. The fear of killing your patient, of doing something wrong, is so, so powerful. There's a famous case of a, a woman in the scientific literature who was unable to feel fear. She had disease of her amygdala of mm-hmm. some sort that seemed to take away the emotion of fear. And the researchers tried everything to make her afraid. They took her to haunted houses and brought snakes and, and roaches and, and spiders, but she just congenitally couldn't feel fear. Mm-hmm. And as a medical student, I wanted to be her. Mm. I envied someone who couldn't feel fear because I was terrified most of my medical training. But I recognize now that having no fear would not would not be good. You need to have some fear, for example, when you approach someone's jugular vein with a six-inch needle. Mm-hmm. Right? You need some fear before you cut someone open or write a dose of chemotherapy for, for them or prescribe other life you know, threatening medications, you need to have some fear mm-hmm. to be in to give you the necessary, I think, awe and humility of what it is you're doing. Yeah, finding the sweet spot, so to speak. Right. Well, I, I think that if it, in terms of having to negotiate an, an armistice with my fears, that we need to have a truth somewhere. Because you're right, every surgeon at some point might have that episode, and the wise 
a tune surgeon says, you know, I can't operate now. I need to call in coverage right. rather than fake it and pretend. And that really puts our patients at risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absol- well, sure, absolutely. So there's a really brilliant quote. So I grew up with an insight on medicine. And one thing that comes up a lot for me is the medical ethic of informed consent, which is you can go logically with your brain to what informed consent is, what the the reasons and all that. But on an energetic level or on an emotional person-to-person level, informed consent, it's about the relationship between the doctor and the patient. The doctor saying, I respect you enough to do my best to give you information within the time I'm allowed, and I respect you enough to be able to allow you to decide for yourself what you want to do. And there's this really great quote here from this guy who I think was very important to you, and you can tell us more about him in a second. Um, he says, let's see, he got sat down on a stool you know, next to an exam table, and he says, quote, whenever you talk to a patient, you seat yourself at their level or lower. You never hover over them high and mighty. They are the ones who are sick, and they are the ones running this interview, not you. Who um, said that? So that was the head of CV surgery, mm-hmm. Dr. Frank Spencer, who ruled the surgery department for, you know, half a century. And he scared the bejesus out of everyone. And I mean even the deans quaked when Dr. Spencer went by. He was such a fearsome figure. And yet that was his philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the patients worshipped him. And that's why. Even though he was an incredibly demanding surgeon, he had the attitude ultimately that his demanding work was in service of his patient and mm-hmm. that as big as his ego was, and it was huge, it never superseded that his patient was in charge. So I just... Right. Oh, it was yeah. interesting. I think, you know, today, you know, these days we have a whole salutary move toward patient autonomy that patients do have decision-making power. But sometimes the pendulum swings in the opposite direction. The doctor says, well, you know, you decide. I'll leave it up to you. Mm. And, and then the patient's sort of saddled with this decision, and, and maybe they don't want to make it alone. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that doctors, we need to be respectful, but also we can't abandon our patients. Mm-hmm. Making a decision about whether to do chemotherapy or not is a very hard one. And, and right. I think that we owe it to our patients that to give them the decision, but also to give them our honest advice and what we think mm-hmm. is better. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we if we have a definite, if there is a definite opinion, or if there's not, why we don't have an opinion, why things are equal, right? But that we should be advocating, you know, what we think is the best thing, respecting a patient if they choose not to, but not to say, hey, it's all you, know, Miss Jones, you make the decision whether or not to have surgery. I write a series of articles called Community Conversations Around Health, and um, I wrote specifically uh, once a month for 18 months, trying to in a way, really actually do what this show is intended to do, which is to um, bring to light different ways of looking at things for people who don't have experience in the medical world. And um, one of the things that my co-writer, Karen, and I came up with the these three concepts, um, two of which I'll mention right now. One is you have questioner personality types and delegator personality types when it comes to making decisions. And so what we mean by this is a delegator is that, that patient that comes in and says, my life is slammed. I don't trust myself to be able to evaluate this issue or, you know, whatever the reason. They're like, I don't want to go home and do a bunch of personal research. That's not what I'm interested in. I want to find a doctor 
who I trust implicitly. It's almost like, you know, faith in your priest, right? You know, I want to trust this doctor who has a great reputation, and I'm just going to give it up to you, and you tell me what to do. I'll do what you tell me to do. That person's personality means that they are most comfortable in that situation. And so, yes, they're the ones that I would hope a doctor would have the emotional intelligence to recognize and even verbally double-check. Do you really, you know, want me to sort of lead the way here? And then you have the other person who says, hold up, I'm going to want to research everything. We're going to have to have a few more extra meetings because you'll need to tell me what you're thinking. I'm going to have to go home for a week or two. I'm going to come back with questions because for a questioner, they feel that they actually are saddled with the final decision and they're not willing to actually put responsibility on the shoulder of the doctor. They want the advisement, but then they're like, I go home with my body or I go home with my child. If I just say, sure, whatever, and then something bad happens, I can't really come back to the doctor and blame them because I'm the one that agreed to their advised advice, right? And I, I think if doctors could definitely understand, you know, that those two types of people are out there, and whichever one it is, really give them what they're needing. Right, and, and also I think that many de- decisions aren't all equal. Right. And, and I think we need to help prioritize that some decisions – will be fine one way or the other, and some are really grave mm-hmm. and, and will not be fine one way or the other, and that we as physicians should l- distinguish these things. Mm-hmm. If a patient wants to decline a flu shot, it's not the end of the world. If they want to decline dialysis when their kidneys are failing mm-hmm. and they will die because of that, that's a different decision. And I think right. we need to, if a patient said, I don't want to do it, we have to really probe that and really understand why. Mm-hmm. And if we think they're making the wrong decision, I would advocate for that, um, dog bark. Oh, that's if, fine. <laughs> <laughs> if I think they're making the wrong decision, that I would really advocate if I think it's a grave error. Do it one more time. Hang on. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> he says, brush me some more. Making, <laughs> uh, if I think they're making a truly grave error, right. I would advocate for them, and I wouldn't rest until I was really sure mm-hmm. that the fully understand um, and not just say, oh, fine, whatever you want, you know, patient autonomy. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not the same. So, right. Um, right, right, exactly, exactly. And the, the beauty, of course, of all of this is that everything we're talking about is impacted by the emotions of the practitioner and the patient, you know, the all of that. And so I, I think you're right. If we can, if, like, this is a great book, obviously, for Young people who are interested in the medical field, maybe they're in high school and they're thinking, I want to go to college, I want to pursue a, you know, a career in the medical field. Um, people who are already studying or even practicing. I mean, I can imagine that there's probably a lot of doctors who, if they were to start reading through this, would probably actually have to stop about two chapters in. They might almost have their own, like almost have, um, what do you call it, when like, you know, a memory that you've pushed... Yeah, either an epiphany, right, or a, maybe there's a suppressed memory. I mean, it is intense residency. So, so I'll let you explain in a second just to make sure I get all the words correct. But the the a lot of hospitals survive on the backs of their residents and their interns. And the the schedules, I mean, you know, we watch the TV shows or people have a general sense, oh, it's sort of hard, but it's exhausting. And in a way, it's almost like the military where, like, it breaks you down and builds you back up again, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's intense. And I imagine there's a lot of people out there who are currently practicing doctors who, if they were to read this, they they would suddenly go, 
Right. Someone understands what I went through in that situation, that, that sense of um, acknowledgement or realizing that, that you're being, what's the word? What am I looking for? Traumatized? No, no. Well, yeah, they were traumatized. But it's that, it's that word when um, you don't. You acknowledge you don't really think someone understands you until you until they do this. But yeah, anyways. Because I wrote, and I don't know if you got to the part about mm-hmm. uh, Eva, the doctor I called Eva, with what she went through in her pediatrics uh, internship. Oh and yes, yes. Oh really yes. Suffered from PTSD. Yeah. She had a full PTSD like reaction from the trauma that she experienced. Yeah. And you know, if we don't take the moment to recognize that, you know, we're really, you know missing a lot and we also we lose physicians and nurses because of the traumatic aspects when the emotions aren't tended to and you know we can't afford to lose doctors and nurses you know right well we have a shortage as it is and so so many um or some percentage of people in training end up leaving because of the emotional distress which i think if they had astute teachers and professors who had this on their radar could pick up on this and Mm-hmm. Deal with it in the moment, and I think many people, you know, would be spared the, the difficult times. Well, it, it, I really, uh, ironically, I keep coming back to the <laughs> puppy dog. I keep coming back to the the um, military analogy, actually, because you know one of the things we oftentimes see in a military movie those moments when someone's having a traumatic experience, and um, it's the person who has a little bit more experience than them has been around a little bit longer who sort of grabs them and drags them off and sits them down and says, this happens to everyone. This is just your first time. You'll survive. It sucks, but you're going to be okay. And, um, and that's, this book also has, there's that beautiful story where the man finds himself essentially going over the cliff for the first time and yeah. someone, and he doesn't even know it's happening. And it's like a, we're talking like a full body meltdown, your brain, and he does not know what's happening. And then someone just looks at him and they get it instantly. And they're like, oh, this is what you need to do. And, and all of a sudden the, the love and the care of the people in that hospital community who nurture him through that experience, you know, I think sometimes patients tend to be very unempathetic towards their medical um, caregiver there's, um... When I hear, think about that story, I think about that doctor's future patients. You know, the right. decades of medical care that that doctor was able to give to his patients were really thanks to the empathy of his supervisor right. who caught that. I mean, if he hadn't, that doctor could have been incapacitated right. and may have left for a desk job. And all the patients who got the who, the recipients of the medical care later would have lost out. So I feel as though it's a... A situation where, we, if you again, if we are thinking about our patients as the primary goal, then taking care of our colleagues falls under that purview. Mm-hmm. That we catch our colleagues who are struggling with depression or substance abuse um, or loss of confidence. Uh, mm-hmm. All these things, you know, it's besides just being the right thing to do as a colleague, but it's for their patients, for our communal patients. It is interesting that old, you just mentioned substance abuse, which reminded me of. Um, my mother had a friend who was a nurse who ended up, well, no, she had two friends that I know of specifically, actually know their names, but I won't share, men who were nurses who ended up getting into substance abuse issues because it's just all around you. And then you have that stereotype of, you know, the 50s and the 60s doctor who, you know, granted, that 
that generation just drank like fish anyways. But still, there was a stereotype of the doctor who comes home, sits down, his wife hands him his, you know, the second he sits down, hands him his, you know, bourbon on the rocks or whatever it is. So often, whether whatever the situation is used by people who are trying to suppress emotions that they don't want to deal with. So um, I think in a way, these two things go together. You're going to have less drug abuse by medical professionals if they are getting better support and care for the emotional side of what they do. Yeah, I mean, medicine has the highest, one of the highest rates of substance abuse and the highest rate of suicide mm. of all professions. And I have a distinct recollection. When I did my Ph.D., my lab was situated on the hallway that joined the operating rooms and the anesthesia suite. So there are always surgeons and anesthesiologists walking back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I was working on the weekend when they found an anesthesia resident who had overdosed Aww. himself, and they carried out his body. I'm young, so I didn't know, but I was just watching as a graduate student, and that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. On average, one physician every day takes their life in America. Just really? Just about every single day. Wow. We, we had a, a last summer, a year and a half ago, at the end of the summer, one of our graduates who was on, going on to an internship came back um, two months later and left off the dormitory roof. And a week later, another intern up the road at another medical school did the same thing. Two interns, fresh out of medical school, just starting their careers, took their lives within a week of each other. And again, I think about all their future patients who lost out because somehow we as a profession didn't catch that these two young doctors were struggling so much. And I don't know their individual details, but there must have been some signs. And did, did we not do our duty as physician educators? Right. And you can also, this brings up the really, 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 really important issue of what we're doing wrong in this country when it comes to um, our educational system. Um, You know, my stepdad, when he got out of medical school and he had worked through it all, they did everything they could to avoid having loans and minimizing loans. I think he still has something like $90,000 in debt. And and he chose, with the support of my mom, to spend three years working in at an Indian you know, reservation um, medical center, which was one of those options where you're actually providing a service to the government, you know, at a high-needs location. And so they were able to pay off the debt very quickly by doing that. But there, you know, that was oh my gosh, that was twenty six years ago. Right now, you know, you, you you walk out into the world and the college debt is just. I don't really know what to say other than nothing except, yeah. Um, my son right now is going to junior college, and it is seven thousand dollars a year to attend a junior college. Wow. Who comes out of high school, gets a high school-based job, and can afford to spend $7,000 a year doing their first year of college at a junior college? Wow. I mean, find that person, because I haven't found them yet. My, you know, And when I was in junior college, I know, it's a bit of a shock, right? It's a, Because you and I are both of an age. I don't know what it was like when you were in college, but for me, I went to junior college, and it was about with books and class tuition total, I think I spent $225 a semester to go to college. That I could do on a waitress job, right? So I'm so sorry you lost those two young people. Yeah, it's really, and I I, I think that we're... I mean, that's terrible. We're we're getting there slowly. I think there's more attention to our emotions and 
it's less, I mean, I think a generation ago, the idea of emotions was just laughed at. Yeah. We used to call it touchy-feely rounds when we'd have to talk about how we felt, and it really was the implication that that this is only for the weak. But, uh, you know, I think about, you know, one of the medical errors I made as a medical resident. I was in my second year of residency, and this was, I trained during the height of the AIDS epidemic, which was Mm. huge in New York, and Bellevue was really ground zero. It was a very exhausting time. Mm -hmm. And... Oh, and political call. and scary and awful. I would say even just medically, even in our little cocoon, we hardly saw the, the world outside, but just in our day-to-day life. Yeah. I mean, it was like an onslaught of these incredibly ill, emaciated patients who looked like they were out of book involved, who were our age, right. who were just dying in right. front of us. It was a lot of death, a lot of desperation, um, and, and a lot of work. You know, a patient would die, and the bed would be filled five minutes later. So we were just... The onslaught of work was, was, was intense. Right. But one of the ways we tried to survive the nights on call was to turf our patients to another service, if you could. You could get them transferred to surgery or gynecology um, because you couldn't survive otherwise. So one mm-hmm. night we're on call, and I get the, the dreaded altered mental status admission. Mm-hmm. An elderly nursing home patient, 90 years old, some Alzheimer's, looks a bit more demented, admits them to medicine. And I totally roll my eyes. Like, my patient, Seridic, having seizures and they're bleeding and they're shaking with fevers and here's this, you know, ancient nursing home patient who demented what's the big deal and labs were fine, radiology was fine, so I knew I had to turf this patient off my service. Mm -hmm. So we had this um, holding area called the intermediate care unit. Basically, if a patient was stable and just needed to get back to their nursing home or get home services, you could kind of shunt them off there. Mm -hmm. So I called the doctor in charge there who kind of hesitated, but I said, oh, the patient's totally stable, lab's fine, radiology fine, come on, come on, take the patient. And she finally relented. And so we got the patient off our service. My intern and I, we high-five. We run back on ER for admission number 13, mm-hmm. uh, who was, you know, completely infected with fungus and all sorts of uh, bizarre HIV-related infections. Right. The next morning, I learned that my totally stable patient actually was bleeding in his head. Mm. That's why his mental status was altered, but I missed it. Mm-hmm. I missed it because I didn't look at the CAT scan. Somebody had said, radiology fine, mm-hmm. and I didn't look at the CAT scan myself right. as I should have. Right. And I remember the shock of realizing that I had really screwed up. I could have cost this patient their life. Mm-hmm. Luckily, someone else saw the scan. Right. The radiology resident called nurse surgery. The patient got whisked off to the OR in the night and got the, the bleed drained. Right. So the patient actually did fine. And so in medical error terminology, this was actually a near miss because it almost happened, but it didn't because someone else, you know, there were layers of redundancy, which is how it should be. Well, and but you were the second I, person, right? Like the right. first person had said they were fine and you didn't double-check them. Right. And but it so, didn't matter because I was the patient's doctor, and I right, had right. done my due diligence. And right. had I, for example, discharged the patient home, he mm. would have died. Yeah. Even though the patient did fine, I was devastated. I was yeah. so I was so ashamed of my error Aww. that I didn't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell my intern. I didn't tell my attending, and I sure as hell didn't tell the patient and their family. Mm-hmm. And when I look back now from, you know, this distance, I understand why I clamped down because I, you know, in that up to until that moment, I thought I was a pretty good doctor, you know. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, the whole image came shattering down, and mm-hmm. I was a complete and utter failure, and that I should leave medicine, I'm not fit to be a doctor. 
And I lived with this shame privately for, for weeks. And I think, you know, what a missed opportunity. Had I been able to tell my attending, my supervisor, or had the environment been such that we talked about these things, mm-hmm. my attending could have talked to me about how the error occurred and how not to make it happen again. Mm-hmm. She could have taken me to the bedside, and she could have modeled, how do you talk to a patient about mm-hmm. a medical error? What an incredibly important skill I could have gained. But thirdly, she could have maybe helped prevent the lingering shame that stayed with me that I am convinced caused many more errors downstream. I was so in a fog that I know that I missed small things, and who knows how many errors I committed in the wake of that error for just being inattentive. Mm -hmm. So the atmosphere of what enables us to capture the emotions around the error, uh, it's important. And I know we have a big press on solving medical errors, and we have checklists for everything, which is great. Mm -hmm. But if we don't pay attention to the emotions surrounding error, we're going to miss. We don't know where the errors are because most of us clamp down because of our emotions. Well, and the reality is that a great deal of learning um, occurs in the midst of a recognized mistake. It's sort of like parenting, you know. Um, If the child feels like um, if they make a mistake, that that is simply a 100% negative in the eyes of the parents, then they're going to try to hide those mistakes. But if they've got a relationship with their parents where parents are like, oh, well, this is a really great learning experience, okay. Like my husband's really sort of cool about that. You know, he's actually a little bit more strict than I am. But ironically, his attitude is, well, just don't make the mistake like three times or four times. You know, he's like, fine, you made it the first time, maybe even the second. But the point is to not repeat. You know, he doesn't ever tell the kids, you shouldn't make mistakes. And I would have imagined, actually, that it would be really, I would be hopeful. That's something I had never heard of. But in my mind, I would have thought that in the medical world, there, especially with all the incredible complexity and the guarantee that mistakes are going to happen, that the attitude would be, Make sure that you catch the mistake, that you learn from it, that you share it with others, and that you expand the learning to those in, you know, in your circle of communication so that each mistake turns into a powerful learning experience. The idea that a person would be feeling shamed, to me, means that you were in an environment that told you you should feel shame. But we talk about, you know, the, um, the psychological construct of the good enough mother. You don't have to be perfect, but mm-hmm. good enough is good enough. We don't have that in medicine. Mm. You're either good or you're a failure. Mm. We don't have room for the construct of that most errors are actually committed by good people. I mean, there are a couple of quacks out there, and we should, you know, get rid of those folks. But most errors are made by very good and caring doctors and nurses who've had a momentary slip or some confluence of events, but mostly it's people who are committed to doing the right thing. And Mm -hmm. those people don't have a place to file you can make an error and still be good, and so we hide them, and therefore right. I think do ultimately more damage to our patients right. because we hide them and because you're afraid of being sued. I mean, let's be honest, because mm-hmm. we can't even recognize that one can give good care and have made an error. We have to sue them because they made that error, and you can destroy right. the doctor or nurse. I mean, there was the nurse who made an error in a pediatric ICU. She gave an infant from a calculation error a tenfold higher dose of calcium chloride. Mm. The baby immediately died. Mm-hmm. She ended up committing suicide mm. eight months later. It was handled terribly poorly, and she was a 20-year veteran, by all accounts, a great nurse. Mm-hmm. But the whole way that this was handled and her own you know, trauma over doing this herself, it was more than she could handle. And I imagine the hospital was a... Very aim- powerful emotions. Right. 
Right, right, absolutely. And yet it's like, hello, wow, you're brave enough to go out there and on a daily basis put yourself in a situation where a human error, because humans make errors, you know, the whatever, a human error can put you in a position of having killed someone and you're willing to have a career where that's a daily risk. Same thing as a police officer. Like those people in those fields need lots of compassion. We have to find that way, that sweet spot. You're not being permissive that, by recognizing reality. Right. I think a good place to start is what if you know, on the first day of medical school, the first day of internship, the chair of the department or the dean of the school got up and said, here's an error that I made mm-hmm. when I was a doctor, and here's what happened, right. how I felt. And you will make an error, right. and we want to minimize them. But when that happens, we want you to know that you can come forward and tell your supervisor that we will not be throwing you out for the error. We'll be trying to solve and fix the error. Mm-hmm. It did not happen again. That it's okay to tell us. We'd rather know than not know. Right. You know, yeah. that's a, a good place, but we don't have anything like that. Wow. So it's the assumption that everyone is perfect except for you, the one terrible doctor who's, you know, right. made this error. Well, that's like um, parents and children. What do they typically do? Very often, parents will treat their children better in public, more respectful, this and that, and children will behave better, you know, and, and, and then the families go home and they have their arguments in the privacy of their home. And because so many people are like that, when you're at home having an argument with your kid and you're thinking of all the other people that you've seen at the playground, at the grocery store, interacting with their kids, you're like, I'm the only mother that argues with my child. All the other parents get along just great with their kids. What's wrong with me? And there's this, this illusion that it's like very much not helpful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So we are at we are nearing the end of our interview time, and I wanted to touch on the one other thing here that you had asked that we could touch on a little bit because I think it's so important um, in America, and it's about equity and care. You know, you're you're in the trenches, and you're sort of seeing the inequity in care. What are your thoughts that you would like um, my listeners? I have listeners actually around the planet, but if we were talking to specifically, let's say, Americans, and there's a medical system in America that you're familiar with, what would you like them to know that maybe they don't know that could influence their understanding of the need for equity and care? Well, I I think about, it's interesting to compare our system of medical coverage and our system, for example, of fire coverage. You know, if you have a fire, you call 911, the fire department comes. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you've bought fire insurance or not bought fire insurance, we think of it as a community property that we have an interest in all fires being put out. Mm -hmm. Or our roads, for example, that's a a shared resource, and we all pay our taxes on that, and the roads are there for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that medicine, somehow in America, medicine is this individual thing that only... You know, certain people get health care and certain people don't, and that right. depends a lot, obviously, on money. And, and to me, it seems absurd. To me, medicine's much more like, a, you know, public school or fire and police coverage, that it's a, a shared thing and mm-hmm. that we should, on the one hand, on ethically, I think it's important, but also as a society, if we're interested in our finance, our economics, um, and contagions, that having everyone healthy has a ben- has an actual benefit for the you know individual people. Mm-hmm. And so our system right now is, is set up that many people don't get as good care as others, and that that pains me mm-hmm. because it is not fair. And I see the inequities of patients who don't get as good care, who really struggle. And 
you know, I feel fortunate to live in New York City where we have a very robust public health system, but I know it's not the case in many parts of the country or many more rural areas that don't have, you know, high-end medical services available for lower socioeconomic patients, and that we should just really think about that we are uh, we are a society, we're a community in, in, in some sense. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, the Affordable Care Act is a kind of a crazy pastiche of many things, but I, I feel like we talk a lot about the economics of it, but not much about the ethics, that why should anyone who lives in our country, a citizen of our country or a resident of our country, not be able to, to get care when we say you can't drive on the roads if you, you know, don't have money? Mm. So I, I look at it as thinking about medical care as an ethical thing and as a shared good that we all deserve. That's actually a really great point. You you know, we, we pay our taxes and we assume that we have access to the roads and the public schools and that those are there for us because, you know, we paid our taxes and bada-boom, bada-bang. Yeah, that is really interesting, the idea of... Um, especially given that there is a lot of public monies that can get involved in the building of hospitals and stuff like that. So if, if, if there is some public monies involved and it's not all private, then why can't taxpayers have access to that resource? Right, and that, that our idea of, of, of health insurance should be on a societal level. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a historical accident that we have private health insurance that really came from, you know, the post-war era when, you know, companies were competing to get workers, so they added these benefits. Oh, let's give nice health insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was sort of just a trend of the day, really entrenched in society, that, you know, health insurance goes along with your job. But what if you don't work or if you do, you know, gig you know, per diem kind of work, which many more people do these days, well, don't they deserve stable mm-hmm. health insurance? Why, why should someone who's an Uber driver or, you know, who is a babysitter, not get the same health care that you who has a stable income as a teacher get. It mm-hmm. seems it's just as important. I, you know, it's critically important to have someone who babysits for your kids be healthy, and, and why right. should they not get that also? You know, my husband has a really nice, you know, solid corporate job he has for most of the time that we've been, all the time we've been together. And I have endlessly been deeply appreciative of the health insurance that we have, ironically, rather than that health insurance making me not care about the issue, it actually makes me feel more horrified, shocked, and outraged every time, you know, I come face-to-face with a friend or someone who, you know, oh, yeah, this tooth has been messed up for, you know, a year and a half, but I haven't been able to make it to the dentist to get it fixed. Or I always feel like it's not fair that I have this access and those people don't. Because I know my son um, was um, skateboarding, and he had an accident. And my husband picked him up and brought him home, and I come home, and, you know, he was having a hard time, like, you know, moving his torso around. So, of course, what do I get to do? I get to call up my stepdad and go, hey, can you help me evaluate this? And he talks me through where to palpate on his torso and this and that, and we talk about it. And at the end, he says, well, it's unlikely, but it's possible he has, you know, damaged his liver. He may have internal bleeding. You could probably take him to the hospital as a safety thing, you know, just to be sure. And I was like, okay, we're going to do it put my kid, you know, doesn't, not, not a question of whether I can, of course we will do this. It is the medical appropriate action. We go there. Sure enough, his adrenal gland was busted and bleeding, but they didn't have to do surgery. He spent three days in the NICU at the age of 12. 
you know, it was like a 15, 16, whatever thousand dollar event that cost my family a thousand dollars. And um, I know another family who had a child that they thought maybe he'd broken his tailbone in a similar type of accident. They didn't have health insurance. They kept him home to wait and see for a few days to see how he would do. Now, if they had been in my situation, they would have done the same thing. And a child who could have actually been bleeding out would have been kept home just to, you know, and by the time they got him in the next day as he's turning gray and having so all sorts of problems right. and stuff, you know, the situation would be that much worse. So, you know, I'm always really, really unhappy that not everyone has proper access. Right. Just time to think about yeah. in our society. Yeah, definitely. Danielle, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you, March. And you, this book we've been talking about is What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. And, um, and then there's a potential what patients say, what doctors hear. That's not a guaranteed final title, but that's the work that I believe you said you're almost going to be done with it this week. Yeah, it was being handed in this week, and the publication date is a year from now, January 2017. That is, I mean, that, I just think about what patients say, what doctors hear. I mean, seriously, people, who would not want to have some insider information on how you can be perceived? You know, you think you're being clear, and somehow they don't seem to get it. Well, what's going on, and what's going on between the two of you? I mean, this is an exciting book. I'm really glad you're working on that, Danielle. Yeah, it's going to be great. Okie doke. So that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Danielle Ofri. Thank you for tuning in to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty the bureaucrats could fall And until they are purged we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality 
And until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. Enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your theory has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress we have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do Bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides, and from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do Bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few.